The Mend Podcast, Instagram questions and answers part two. I didn't get to all the questions because they kind of kept rolling in and uh, the order they came in was kind of different. The way the comments and likes and all that stuff comes in made me miss a few and so I'm doing a follow-up to yesterday's podcast. And we're going to hit some questions and then the guys in the shop um, had me write down a few questions um, that people have asked semi-frequently. So... Let's just get right to it. I'm not into wasting your time, so let's get after it here. Uh, the butthead on the fly, uh, that's really his name, uh, asked what the best casting sub $500 rod is. And this is kind of a, maybe a three or four fold question simply because it didn't say trout rod or spay rod or saltwater rod. Um, but I'll address this as though we're just talking about like, hey, I need a fly rod and I'm going to fish trout-sized species and I want the best casting rod there is. Uh, There's some really good ones. I actually struggled with this one a little bit, but um, I've got to go with the Sage Pulse at $450 um, because I'm going to use all of his budget uh, because the more you spend, the more you get. These rod companies, they're so extremely competitive and people like me, we're so critical of product that it really has to be priced appropriately. The materials that go into these things have a profound impact on the rod's ability to rebound with great energy. And that is a spectacular casting rod. And Sage Pulse is great. And the Sage Pulse scales pretty well too um, because it's available from, gosh, I think everything from a three weight uh, to a seven weight uh, and everything in between. So they may even make that one in an eight weight. And so that answers a lot of questions. Um, yeah, let me take a look here. Uh, just because I try not to do too much in recollection. We stock probably a thousand different fly rods. Yeah, they make it all the way through the 896, uh, which is a nine and a half foot eight weight. And so the pulse is pretty broad range. So if you were looking for a streamer rod under 500 bucks, for instance, the 691 pulse, that's a six weight, nine feet long with a fighting butt would be great. If you're looking for a streamer rod to lift sink tips, the 697 pulse would probably be the winner there as well. And then all the way on down to a seven and a half foot three. It's a pretty big family of rods. So it covers most of, of what Butthead on the Fly was asking. Um, if there was a number two uh, choice and you were going a little bit uh, lower on budget, I'm probably at the Sage Foundation for more of a beginning angler that wants something a little easier to cast. It still performs good. I've taken that Sage Foundation out and it will reach out there and touch targets at a distance comparable to almost everything. So I don't want to say that it lacks performance, but it just tends, it's a little softer, tends to be easier to cast, and it helps a new to intermediate angler find a very, take a very intuitive approach to the casting stroke. And uh, that's at like 325 bucks, Sage Foundation, and then the Reddington Crux uh, fits in there really nicely at 400 bucks. Uh, the Crux is a great rod. It's uh, it's the only overseas built rod in that sub five hundred dollar group. And there's a lot of other rods. If I left out your favorite, um, I apologize. I'm so sorry. Uh, but uh, yeah, sub five hundred bucks. Sage Pulse, uh, Sage Foundation for more of a beginning angler at a little less price point. So uh, very very good question. But I think the Pulse is a pretty easy choice. And uh, right now, uh, if you add a Sage Pulse to your cart, this isn't why I chose the rod. It's just kick-ass rod add the sage pulse to your cart put a real gold fly line in your cart and that real gold fly line will ring up at for free 
So you're actually getting a line uh, and a rod for 450 bucks. Pretty good deal. Um, okay, so next question. And I'm going to butcher a few usernames because I wrote this down and my penmanship is awful. Uh, Stu Vegas, uh, he asked, this is more of a localized question, but I'm going to scale it to kind of meet uh, the whole country. But he asked, what is the best time for fishing smallmouth bass on the lower Yakima River? So, uh, just in general, river fishing for smallmouth bass. Springtime, in my opinion, is always going to be the best um, because those bass are either typically either pre-spawn or post-spawn and tend to feed very aggressively. Uh, they feed very aggressively pre-spawn because they need to build up weight because they're going to have some periods of dormancy when they're protecting nests. And then there's going to be a little bit of a lull in there somewhere. Not every bass is going to spawn exactly the same time. Depending on when they find a mate, they get on the nest, etc. cetera. Uh, Post-spawn, they're going to be very aggressive again. But I tend to like the water just a little bit higher and a little bit more off-color for river fishing smallmouth. If you wait until like mid to late June, you might catch more bass. But I tend to find the larger fish are a little bit harder to catch if we get on into late June, July, August, etc. So uh, if I had to pick a date range, I'm probably looking at the first week of June, um, fishing the lower Yakima. For smallmouth, just make sure you watch on that river specifically and use this information on your rivers, but watch the river flows and try to get it when it's not, when it's just about average runoff or a little bit less in mid-May to mid-June. So you don't want to fish it when it's really high and dirty, but some color in the water uh, is good. And typically on smallmouth, I'm most often fishing sink tips. Uh, largemouth, I almost exclusively fish on floating lines for control, but in rivers, I like sink tips. So uh, that's a good question. Mid-May to mid-June, peak time being first week of June, especially if you want a shot at a legitimately awesome smallmouth in that four to six pound range. Those fish fight hard. They hit the fly very aggressively because they're pursuing it in current. And I like a uh, you know, variety of salmon smolt patterns would be good, but crayfish are always a favorite of smallmouth. They seem to have kind of a sweet tooth uh, for that. And something, I want to insert this, and I should have inserted at the beginning of the podcast, but... Uh, you follow our blog, redsflyshop.com slash blog. I'm going to start, I'm going to go back to posting and embedding these Instagram posts within the blog um, so that I can provide a few more links and things like that actually on a blog article rather than trying to do it like in a podcast description. Just works uh, better that way. Uh, so J, he asked, what is my favorite fluorocarbon knot? Good question. So, when it comes to knots in general, I did a video series uh, late last year, and you can go back uh, on our YouTube channel, and I think there's a whole playlist actually dedicated uh, to knots, and uh, I'm just going to look it up real quick. And yeah, there's a whole dedicated playlist for knots, and if you just go to our channel and click playlist, you can find those in there somewhere. There's about 20 playlists in there, but I do cover um, some knots in the... The playlist is called How to Set Up Mono Running Line. Or, excuse me. The playlist is called... Uh, hang on just a second. Knots and Leader Setups. The first video that comes up is about setting a mono running line. But if you click that playlist open, 
you can click all these different knots and I provide some more detailed insights, but uh, I tend to like just a standard clinch knot with my fluorocarbon. Uh, I don't improve it. That tends to take a little bit more time. It gets a little bit messy. I get a little bit more uh, abrasion right in that last sixteenth of an inch above the knot. It doesn't seem to cinch down as good when I do an improved clinch knot. So I tend to just run a straight clinch knot and uh, I do about eight turns around the main line. That's for like most of my small nymphs and fluorocarbon tippet. Uh, I'm going to use uh, exclusively fluorocarbon. I might make an exception occasionally, but that's what I'm using for any subsurface fly like a streamer or a nymph is fluorocarbon tippet material. Uh, I will tie loop knots quite a bit and I'll do that on my larger nymphs, say number 10s on up to allow that fly to have a little bit more flexibility especially when I'm fishing stout tippet, say 4X or 3X to larger nymphs, and I want to give that nymph a little bit more natural flexibility, I'll tie a non-slip mono loop on that. And I'll tie a non-slip mono loop on everything from 20-pound test on down to my subsurface flies, and then on my saltwater flies, we start to get into tippet that might be 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 pound, and that's a whole different conversation, but you can see those different uh, loop knots. There's one video called My Favorite Saltwater Loop Knot, and if you're a saltwater angler, you might find that really handy for tying that super heavy stuff and still getting a really clean and easy to tie uh, loop knot. Um, good, very good question. I hope uh, that answered that uh, for that person. Um, and this is uh, a question, and some of the local localized questions, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to try to scale them so that no matter where you're at, this information is always relevant to you. Uh, Andre Perez asked a recommendation on a good section of the Yakima River for using a nine-foot uh, pontoon boat. So uh, I am going to recommend anybody floating rivers that are newer to them and just in general learn to use the base map tool. Go to basemap.com slash reds or redsflyshop.com slash basemap and you will get a tutorial on how to use this because you're going to want to use satellite imagery and GPS mapping via your smartphone to track your float progress, scout log jams, scout braided channels, look at access points, mark waypoints for good stopping points, and fishy spots. Use that base map app. You can use it for hunting, hiking, mountain biking, cross-country skiing, whatever you want. But get that app and download in advance. It's super easy to do. Base map has awesome resources. But start to utilize that base map program to pre-scout the float you're going to do. Drop a few pins on there using your desktop computer. Your account syncs perfectly to your smartphone. And then on your smartphone, you can download that area that you're going to be floating in advance so that you don't have to have any cell coverage to utilize the GPS feature and those off-grid maps. That said, that's like step one. Get good with that program. Step two is me telling you where to stay away from. Uh, so there's a section of the Yakima River, and you can see it on that base map with the satellite imagery, where you're going to see log jams and a lot of braided channels. The section here we call the farmlands. It's where the river runs through a, a big, wide cottonwood valley. It's where I live, city of Ellensburg. I live about five minutes from the river. 
the river braids, it meanders, there's lots of channels, there's lots of sweepers and some dangerous spots as far as log jams and channel blockages. I generally recommend people stay away from there until they're really an expert at handling their pontoon boat and definitely stay out of there when the water is high and swift because man, you get on the wrong side of the river up there and you don't react in time, you're going to wind up in a strainer and it's a bad deal. So I'm going to recommend starting the Yakima Canyon. It's easy to read the water. You can see ahead. You can see there's nothing bad happening. Get a few floats under your belt. Figure out that section of river and fish the same section of river. This applies for anybody floating in personal watercraft on a river. Do the same section of river two and three times because there's no doubt you're going to float by spots you wish you'd stopped. And as a guide, I mean, that's how we learn the river. We float the same section numerous times. We find water we like. We, we pass water. We go, man, next time I need to leave enough time to fish that spot. And in a, in a nine-foot pontoon boat, I just can't encourage you enough. Don't try to fish with fins. Don't try to fish on the move. It makes a mess of things. Stop the boat. Get your feet on solid ground. The water you do stop at, work thoroughly, and then pass all the Pass all the bullshit. Don't try to fish bad water. Do a float that's anywhere from three to six miles and fish the spots that look good. Fish them hard. Get creative. Pull your pontoon boat back up. And on big rivers like this one, you're going to have to pull that boat over and walk back up on spots because you're going to float by and go, oh my God, that spot is sweet. And you're going to pull the boat over maybe 100 feet or 100 yards below the spot, secure the boat and walk back up and fish on foot. Now, depending on the pontoon boat, you may be able to put your feet on the ground and fish standing with the boat kind of um, bumping into your legs. Um, a watermaster boat is perfect for that. That's why I think there's nothing better. And I know people wince about the price on watermasters. Nobody has ever regretted buying one of those boats. That's why you don't see them used. They rarely pop up on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, or whatever. Watermasters are absolutely awesome boats. So, Depending on your pontoon boat, you may be able to put your feet on the ground and stay in the boat, which I really like. So I would experiment with that in some shallow gravel bars and see if you can just float down and go, hey, it's 18 inches deep, it's soft current, I can stand up here, stand up and let that pontoon boat just sit on your legs. If you can fish in the boat, it saves you a ton of time because then you don't have to anchor it, you don't got to drag it up on shore and all that kind of stuff. So make that your goal, but I recommend the lower canyon Fish it a couple times, uh, get your bearings about you. Uh, I don't have, certainly it would be great if I could go through the whole Yakima River from head to toe, but that's where I would start. And then uh, I would avoid that Ellensburg area at the beginning and then watch the wind forecast. If you do decide you're going to float the upper reaches in a personal watercraft, watch the wind forecast before you do it. If it's if it's blowing 20, 25 miles an hour out of the north-northwest uh probably think about hunkering down in the canyon uh, here where you get a little bit more shelter than that that section in the upper reaches so uh, good question I uh, hope that was helpful for people all over the place uh, Hickson cop uh, asked when was the first time I picked up a fly rod uh, so good question I could go on and on about this one so I did not grow up in a fly fishing family my dad was a, and still is, a very harvest-oriented angler. And uh, as am I, when, uh, when the rules uh, allow it, I love keeping good numbers of yellow perch, 
smallmouth bass. I typically don't keep any trout unless I'm in the high country. My family and I backpack a ton, and uh, we always take rods, and we always have a good fish fry uh, when we're backpacking. But uh, I love to keep warm water fish and uh, now. But when I grew up, we fished a lot of trolling and fished a lot of kokanee, which are landlocked sockeye salmon. Uh, we kept trout. We kept bass. Uh, we kept uh, fished in Puget Sound, kept a lot of bottom fish, ate a lot of fish and chips growing up. It was awesome, but we didn't fly fish. It wasn't until I started to get my butt handed to me on high mountain lakes by trout that had seen every spinner and refused to eat spinners. They'd follow them. They'd kind of strike at them a little bit half-assed. And it got really frustrating because we could see the fish feeding on flies. It was gin clear water. And I grew up right outside Mount Rainier National Park where there's a ton of really good high mountain lake fishing. And these fish were just too smart. So I went through the natural evolution. There was no internet and blogs and junk like that to teach us. So I just went through the, the transition of buying flies at the gas station on my way up as a teenager, you know, sometimes with my dad, sometimes with my brother-in-law who really took me under his wing and he had a driver's license. He was dating my sister and he was older than me and he had a driver's license and God bless him. He took me everywhere. It was a real, really fortunate to have him in my life. But we'd stop by the gas station. We'd buy like a two pack of flies or four flies because that's all we had money for. And we'd use a plastic bobber and we'd wing them out there on our spinning rod in these high mountain lakes. Well, we started to have a little bit of success doing that. And my brother-in-law um, had a fly rod, but that was really how I transitioned into it was out of necessity for catching trout. And uh, the experience that I really had, I didn't have my own fly rod. I also had a good friend that I fished with growing up and we fished Gosh, it seems like every day during the summer, and that was my friend Tommy Henley, and his family uh, ran a resort on a lake near Eatonville, Washington, not far from Mount Rainier National Park, called Henley's Resort. And his grandfather, George Henley, uh, left a fly rod down at Tommy's place, which was on the lake. And man, we would try to cast that thing on the dock, and uh, it was a bamboo rod. And man, nobody could make that work, only old man Henley. He was the only one who could cast that rod. It was like a thing of beauty and magic and voodoo all rolled into one piece of bamboo. But we hacked away with that thing. We tried. We couldn't cast. And we, we didn't really have much or any instruction. But Tommy and I gave, we gave it hell, but we could never really cast very effectively. So my teenage years had me primarily fishing bass and warm water, spinning gear. I was a bass fishing fool on light tackle on all of the, the local lakes where I grew up and uh, really fell in love with like really delicate finesse fishing for largemouth bass. And for those that haven't done it, I, you know, bass, there's such a misconception that, you know, you just, you just wing heavy, bunch of heavy shit out there and bass tackle it. It's, it's not the case at all. Bass are very selective. They're very picky. And that's why Bass tournaments really separate the experts from the amateurs uh, when you start to measure up because bass are very selective. And I really fell in love with it, and uh, I went to a transition out of that and uh, went to college in Ellensburg, where I now live. I've lived there since 1997, so I've been there, I guess, 23 or 24 years now. And uh, when I got to college, it moved to eastern Washington. For those that don't have traveled to where I live, you've probably seen a lot of videos and stuff. It looks much more like central and southern Idaho uh, on, and parts of Montana. We're on the dry side of the Cascade Mountains and really at the foot of the 
right between the mountains and the desert. And so it makes for just really great trout habitat. And I began to fly fish when I was in college and really took off with it from there. So I didn't grow up in a fly fishing family. I didn't grow up with a lot of instruction. Uh, I, I had some good mentors along the way that I can just thank for like really dumbing it down for me and teaching me. But if you're at that stage of like, I want to be a better fly fisherman, you, there's no substitute just failure and putting your head down and hacking through it. Because I didn't grow up traveling to Montana with my family and having somebody show me how to do it. Um, I was reading books. I was studying, you know, we didn't have the internet and it's probably helped me learn because books are like, this. Po- I'm glad you're listening to my podcast. I'm glad you watch the YouTube videos or, you know, see an article that I write occasionally, but there's no substitute for just good books. And so put your head down, learn, fail, and fail forward. You know, don't take failure as like discouragement. Take it as encouragement that you go out and you don't catch anything. That's the worst it gets. It's going to get better from that point forward. So hopefully that some of you find that inspiring that you don't have to come from a fly fishing pedigree to eventually be very successful, but you do need to have some determination. So, uh, and then as I went on, uh, you know, my, I have an uncle, my uncle Sid Burns, uh, it, it really just, yeah, just do a whole podcast. I should probably try to get him on a podcast. He's just a fascinating individual, but he ran a fishing resort, uh, and, and it's since had some issues with wildfire, um, at the resort, uh, in right at the edge of the Glacier Peak Wilderness in the North Cascade Mountains. And he really was the first person to take me aside and actually he probably just got, he probably just couldn't stand it anymore watching me try to cast his bamboo rod. And, uh, he gave me some instruction in learning to cast, fly cast, really began to take off with it when I was 13 years old at Domkey Lake, which was also an alpine lake. And now that I have kids of my own, my kids are 16, 13, and 11. Uh, that is their absolutely favorite thing to do. They love bass fishing, but they love fly fishing and spin fishing high mountain lakes. And uh, that's really where I, you know, I really got completely addicted to it as a teenager. So uh, it's a good question. I love sharing that kind of stuff. So if you guys like it, you want to hear more about kind of how I transitioned from a hack to a guide, uh, ask me more questions, put it in the comments, um, or just, you know, message us on Instagram. Uh, okay. So moving along, this was a shop oriented question, this next one, and that is just the difference, uh, between salt and freshwater fly lines. Um, so Really, there's there's a hundred different fly lines, and it, it, it does get very complicated. And I've said this before, but oftentimes anglers, when they're making decisions about what to do, like a rod and a setup and this and that, the fly line may have the most profound impact on your setup's performance, more so than the rod, the reel, uh, or even the fly, because the line ultimately is the delivery mechanism that needs to reach out across the water and deliver the fly. But when it comes to saltwater and freshwater lines, there's really like three factors here, like Number one is if it's a tropical environment that you're going to be saltwater fishing, uh, like near the equator, you need a fly line that is going to be stiff enough to handle those warm conditions. A freshwater line is really, trout line is made for cold water species, and it's going to get too flaccid and rubbery and soft in tropical environments. So that is like the first thing. If it's a tropical saltwater destination, it's got to be a tropical line with a temperature rating to handle 80 degree water at times. So that's the first one. The second one is saltwater lines often have a heavier core um, because in saltwater, you often have the potential to target larger fish. So a line that's built for stripers 
is probably going to have a heavier core than a line that's built for trout in a creek, for instance. So core strength, temperature rating. The third one, or I guess there's going to be four, the third one is going to be the stiffness of saltwater lines. Saltwater lines are never made to uh, drift and mend in current, typically. Now, I know there's probably an exception, but saltwater lines are generally meant for blasting out a long straight cast. Any stiff line is really effective for blasting out a long straight cast, especially in the wind, especially with a weighted fly, like a bait fish pattern, which is very common in saltwater. Uh, the last one... Uh, the last uh, factor, I think I kind of covered that when I said stiffness. So we'll just, we'll kind of leave it at that. There really isn't a difference. Like saltwater isn't going to like corrode your line or anything like that. Uh, a lot of lines are made for uh, fishing in bowl. Um, and then another quality uh, about saltwater lines is oftentimes they're made with shooting heads and really an aggressive weight forward so that you can throw maybe a limited number of false casts, two or three false casts, and then you can blast out a shot. Uh, and, and, and efficiently recover a cast of maybe your greatest potential. Maybe your greatest potential is 60 feet, maybe it's 100 feet, but saltwater lines are often built with tapers or profiles that allow the angler to, to grab distance very quickly and efficiently. And there's naturally some, uh, some differences in there. A fly line made for bonefish isn't really like that because it's made to measure distance carefully and sit down a soft cast, but I'm speaking in generalization, so... Uh, that's a question we get in the shop um, quite often, but check the temperature rating and then check the profile of the line. And if you haven't been using like our instant messaging, like our chat on our website, I'm going to say it. We are the best. We don't always get back to you in minutes. We don't always get back to you the same day, depending on what time you come in. We're not going to sit on this thing at night. Um, we do other stuff other than dog fly fishing. But hit us on that instant message thing, and it, it'll be at the top of our queue when we show up in the morning. We're going to answer your question. And sometimes on that chat, uh, we'll work with you on live chat instantly. So if you have questions about this stuff, use that chat feature. Um, the guys are on it right now. Um, in fact, I've got my chat open online. Uh, when I'm here, uh, I'm on the chat a good portion of the time as well. So um, use that if you have questions that are technical like these. Uh, the next question is from, they call me doctor. And uh, I loved this question. This was probably out of all the questions that I got, my favorite one. And what it was, what things can <clears throat> the average angler do to protect waters like the Yakima? This question is super relevant for anybody who has a local water that they love. Now, the Yakima is like a lot of other western rivers. Um, it is big, beautiful. It's all wild trout, 100% wild trout. And they don't plant it, they don't stock it, and as anglers, we're responsible for helping that population of trout perpetuate and be vibrant and healthy. So I saw this river uh, from, I started guiding in the year 2000, and I'm going to go with a little backstory, and this is true of probably a lot of other rivers. I started guiding here in 2000. Digital cameras got popular in about 2003, and how digital cameras are relevant will be answered here in a second, so if you're wondering where I'm going with this, hang tough. Digital cameras got really popular in about 2002, 3, 4. Outfitters and guides began to be able to manage their own websites in about 2004. We, you know, the, the software got good enough that we could start to post photos of trout. Digital cameras at that time were also clunky. They were old. They were slow to react. They didn't snap pictures instantly. They had to process, and there was a delay, and anglers really enjoyed 
being able to take a picture holding a trout, okay? And what I saw happen, I didn't realize it until later on, but I was a huge part of this problem, is we were taking a lot of photos of fish, we were handling fish, everybody wanted the grip and grin shot, everybody wanted the hero shot. At the time, we were still printing out a lot of photos. They'd go up on a cork board or a desk, or we'd print them and frame them. And we didn't have access to the same kind of media that we do now, where it was just real flashy, short, and brief. And we were taking a lot of photos of big fish, and we were holding them out of the water a long time. And I feel like I can provide direct testimony that handling fish will hurt the fishery, because from 2005 to about 2009 or 10, our river saw a real dip in the quality of fishing and the number of mature fish that we had in the stream. In 2009, and this isn't me tooting my own horn or Red's tooting our own horn, but we began to adapt a policy specifically related to how our guests, and I can just speak to it from an outfitter standpoint, this is true for anglers in and out of guide boats and whoever, okay? But I can speak to it as an outfitter and I thought, you know, we're running a lot of guided trips. Our anglers are very successful. Our guides are very good. And we catch a lot of very mature trout and nice trout. And if we're taking all these photos and we're providing, doing all this handling, what I want more than anything is I want people to come back and fish with us based on experience and memories, not a photo of, not a measuring competition where we've got photos of bigger trout than our competitor because that's how it started out. And we wanted the best and biggest fish post on our website to validate our services. And over a period of years, as, as we matured as an outfitter, we realized like customer experience is far more important than a picture of a big fish. So in 2009, we said, hey, let's stop taking photos of fish. Let's just say customer can hold a fish once a day. We'll take a photo of it, and that'll be a great memory. And we can all work together with our customers. And our customers, there was a little bit of pushback at first, but eventually they're like, if you're doing something good for the river, I'm on board. Well, eventually we moved on and we just said, let's not take fish out of the water at all. And granted, there are some exceptions occasionally. Somebody really wants to get a picture of a fish or our guides will hold the trout out of the water every now and then. You will rarely ever see me do that. I might hold it for a few seconds for during a video, but we just simply don't do big hero shots at holding fish. We keep them wet. We keep them in the water. We release them immediately. We might catch on a really good day of fishing 10 to 15 really nice mature trout that are 16 inches or more. We want those fish to, to get right back in the water and survive, and or not only survive, because catch or release isn't a law. It should be a lifestyle or a style that we utilize to make the river better. And I've always said, if you want to do something today that will make the river better tomorrow, either catch less trout or, hand, or, or have less impact on the trout you do catch. I love... The, the flies we're orienting to, to in our shop whenever available. We're trying to buy flies and provide them to you that already have barbless hooks. Fish come unhooked faster on a hook that's tight on a true barbless hook. If I could have all barbless hooks in our shop, I would. It's just unfortunately a lot of the best patterns are still tied on barbed hooks. And we, we try to get them on barbless hooks, but like Fulling Mill. Fulling Mill, their line of nymphs, go to our website. Look at Fulling Mill. Just search Fulling Mill in the search bar. Look at those nymphs. They're tied on true barbless hooks. That's a great way to help you release fish faster. But I've always said, if you want to do something today that will make the river better tomorrow, have less impact on the trout you're catching. There are lots of people working feverishly on water quality and habitat and water flow management. I've got friends that work for our Department of Fish and Wildlife and Department of Ecology, the Bureau of Reclamation. I see these civil servant warriors 
that spend entire careers on helping us make our fisheries better. I'm not going to be able to take action today that's going to reduce pollution and make habitat better tomorrow. But what I can do is I can say, hey, let's take really good care of these trout. When you catch an 18-inch trout, that is a full full bore spawning age, highly productive spawning fish. Make sure it survives through the spring. It'll eventually die after the spawn. These trout, these old, these big old trout, they get tired. They only last a certain number of years. But their last couple of years of spawning are by far their most productive. I want to say an 18-inch trout is twice as productive on the spawn as a 16-inch trout. I mean, I realize that's a generalization and it depends a little bit more qualitatively on the individual fish. But those older trout are far more productive. Let's take care of those trout. And that is the number one thing we can do is... Handle fish less when, you know, when our guides anymore, uh, you know, I think the world of the team that we have here, these guys are gentlemen, they're, they're stewards of this river. We have a resort and a shop on the river. I drive this river every morning on my way to work and I get to see anglers out there and, uh, and I see the amount of, and we're not an overly pressured river. The Yakima is a big technical challenging stream. It is not, it's not the Bighorn River. It's not the Green River. It's not the Missouri River. We don't have those gross numbers of fish like they do. It's still hard, but there is fishing pressure. Uh, you know, not like the Madison or some other streams, but these fish see flies almost daily. They do get caught, and if we can take really good care of them as an angler, that's the number one thing we can do. So, um, you know, pay it forward, keep them wet, release quick, fish quick. You know, cherish the adventure. Don't worry about the grip and grin. I think that's the number one thing we can all do. Uh, we have a couple of other little projects that we have our, finger, our fingers in regarding habitat you know, streamside habitat and some other things like that. But the big one is just let's adopt, uh, you know, this a more uh, progressive paradigm on how we do or don't handle fish in pressured areas. I will say if you go to a, a saltwater destination or it's a steelhead or it's a bass or something, some other fish, uh, especially during area areas that are less pressured, or times of year where the water is colder for cold water species and therefore has more dissolved oxygen content within the water. Yes, a picture with wet hands done responsibly, not in a boat, but maybe while you're kneeling in the water. Get a great picture. I'll do the same thing. I do that a lot. When I go to Chile, you know, those fish are living in a highly, you know, highly oxygen environment. They see very little pressure to take a picture of a mature trout in an area that doesn't see much pressure. Fantastic. On a river like this where we guide it every day, I'm letting them go as quick as I can. And when I've had a really, really, really good day, uh, that's when I might tone it back a little bit. I might fish some offsides. I might try some new flies and do some things where I don't have to catch, you know, 20 to 30 trout a day to have a good day uh, and, and make it a successful outing. So I, I love that question. The whole podcast dedicated to that would probably be wise in the future. The next, the next question I'll hit uh, is from the shop and the shop is uh saying that just explaining a real brief explanation on tippet and especially tip materials uh we see a lot of people and i'm going to roll sink tips into this a little bit um as well but regarding tippet tippet is one of the cheapest investments you can make fluorocarbon tippet there's a lot of sticker shock when people go to buy fluorocarbon tippet it's 15 bucks a spool you use a couple of feet of it at a time there's probably no other investment maybe a fly that has a more profound impact on your success and is cheaper than tippet and having the right tippet and the right size of tippet. 
So I've done a couple of videos. Um, go back to the YouTube channel uh, if you want more information specifically on this. And I think there is a playlist uh, that's like called the Tip It and Leaders. There's so many playlists on here. I'm having a hard time finding it. But uh, there is a playlist with some information on how to choose Tip It and select Tip It. And I think it's under yeah knots and leader setups. It's the same one that I referred to earlier. And yes, it's called, are you using the wrong tippet? Appropriately named, okay? And uh, in that, I really detail it out. But fluorocarbon tippet is for your aquatic flies, your nymphs, your, your subsurface patterns. Yes, it's expensive, but make sure you're using mono tippet anytime you're using dry flies and you're going to save money because mono tippet or nylon tippet is cheap. So uh, watch that video. That's the best way to explain it. The fluorocarbon tippet is cheap overall. Now, where I said anglers screw up on sink tips is they buy these trout space setups or they, they plan to go fish streamers or lake fish or whatever, and they buy, uh, they spend a thousand bucks on a sweet rod and reel for trout spay, and they're like, oh, I just want one sink tip. And, and if I get them on the phone or on chat, I tell them, hey, like, dude, you spend a thousand bucks. If you're snagging bottom too much, you need to run a lighter sink tip. If you're running a lighter sink tip and you're not getting any fish and you think that there's fish down there, put a heavier sink tip on. You need to be co cover all areas of the water column. So spend the extra 20 bucks, get a couple of sink tips, and take good care of them. Get a sink tip wallet and put them in there. Get a leader wallet and take good care of your tapered leaders. And those investments are really incrementally small in comparison to your time. And so buy, you know, invest in good tip it and invest in a variety of it, get tapered leaders, and make sure you have the right sink tips. Next question was, the shop guys uh, threw up here for me, is uh, streamer rod. And what makes a good streamer rod? Uh, why do you want a specific rod for streamers? It's a really good question. So we, we chat about it a little bit, and I've kind of broke it down like this. A streamer rod for trout is going to insinuate that you're blind casting a lot. If you're blind casting a lot and you're throwing, uh, we'll assume we're throwing some heavily weighted flies and streamers. We're going to throw some, some junk with cone heads on them, maybe some articulated stuff, maybe some big dumbbell eyes. We're just going to start with a six weight and say a six weight really is kind of the streamer rod for trout. If you're going someplace like Alaska, Chile, Russia, maybe Montana, and you're throwing a lot of really big stuff for brown trout, maybe a seven weight. Uh, but a six weight really is kind of the, the streamer stick. And I mentioned one earlier, and that was a 691. We call it a 691-4. And what that means, it's a six weight, nine feet long. That's the nine. The one insinuates there's a fighting butt in the dash four. means it's a four-piece rod, which most everything is a four-piece rod anymore. But a 691-4 is a great streamer rod. Uh, I like a rod that is a little bit not, it, it's still got to be a fast action, but more like a medium fast, fast, not like an ultra fast. I want the rod to have a little bit of flex and I want the middle and the butt of the rod to do a little bit of work for me because I'm probably going to be blind casting a lot. And so I don't need to go with a super fast action rod and a super fast action rod, just one comes to mind. That'd be like a, uh, Sage igniter. Uh, it's a great streamer rod, but I personally, if I'm blind casting a lot, I want something with a little bit more flex uh, for trout. And I'm assuming when we say streamers, it's for trout. So I think that those are a good choice. I think most of the six weights are built appropriately for streamers. 
if you're doing situations where you're really throwing, you know, a mile a line and you're throwing a long ways, then we might want something that's really purpose built. Uh, and in the affordable price range, we'd be like uh, a Reddington Predator. Uh, that that rod is really purpose built for throwing streamers and, and throwing further. It's going to be tough. It's durable. It's three hundred bucks. It's a great one in that price range. But what it's not going to do is it's not going to mend and feed the line nearly as nice. Uh, that's one thing it's really not going to do. It's probably not going to roll cast nearly as nice. Uh, the streamer rod I'm using right now is a 689-4 Sage payload. It launches well. I can throw two, you know, one or two false casts really, and I can I can fire that line out to, to good distance. And when we're trout fishing with streamers, contrary to what I think a lot of rod manufacturers will have you believe that we offer the best performance. This is great. It's going to, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's going to reach out and cast to the other side of the earth. You can cast all around, cast the circumference of the entire earth in one cast. You know, that's all fine and great. But when I'm streamer fishing, I'm throwing a lot of shorter casts and I'm firing them very accurately into heavy cover, uh, especially from the boat at times. If I'm using a boat and I'm being rowed, my streamer rods, I'm throwing 30 foot casts uh, a lot of the time. So, that rod really needs to be able to load up and fish at close range if you're going to be fishing in a drift boat. If you're going to be standing in the river and you're going to be swinging streamers and you're throwing a long ways, you might consider like a nine and a half foot six weight where we're picking up a sink tip and we're standing knee deep in the water and we're launching it a long ways. That'd be a slightly different scenario. And then a, a faster action rod might be good for that. But stream rods should be durable. They should be six weights and they need to be paired with a line that's capable of turning over heavy fly and not making you throw five or six false casts to generate line speed. A, a standard trout taper fly line, like a Rio Gold, uh, Rio Perception, Scientific Angler's Amplitude Trout, or Infinity, those are going to require a few more false casts for throwing a streamer, and the line's going to have a profound, as profound an impact as the rod. When it comes to throwing a streamer, uh, you want like a Rio Big Nasty fly line, Scientific Angler's Titan, Rio streamer tip, and there's a few other lines that uh, are capable of throwing heavier flies. So hopefully that gives you a few leads if you're looking to improve your streamer game, which is great because fishing streamers, you have the opportunity to <laughs> to get bit up pretty good with, with vicious strikes and catch some larger trout that feed primarily on bait fish. Another question we have here is uh, lake lines and we 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 outfit people for lakes and i just want to make sure like if you're fishing lakes and you have to choose a one line does all thing there there are times you can dry fly fish on lakes like if if it's july and august and you're fishing you know alpine lakes and high mountain lakes for especially cutthroat trout those lakes they have aquatic insect life but those trout are going to be very reactive to to dry flies and they're going to fish or they're going to feed on ants bees beetles terrestrials Things getting blown into the lake, uh, bugs that are hatching on the surface and present themselves as easy and vulnerable targets. A trout in one of those alpine lakes is going to have a tough time making a living swimming around feeding on nothing but aquatics during the summer when their metabolism is up. So I fish a floating line on the high lakes, but if I'm fishing lowland lakes, and there are fantastic lowland lakes, especially where we live uh, in the Columbia River Basin. Man, there are a lot of spring-fed lakes um, that kind of have a, a 
let's say if an artificial ecosystem, but with the, the Columbia River dams have altered the water landscape in the Columbia Basin. We've got spring-fed lakes that have just killer trout fishing, man. And these things are full of damsel damselflies and dragonflies and leeches and calabatus and other swimming nymphs. And when you fish those swimming nymphs in lakes, the go-to line for me is uh, just an intermediate sinking line. It sinks at about an inch to an inch and a half per second. I can fish middle of the water column. If I need to fish down deeper, I can fish a lightly weighted fly and get my fly down a little bit. I can fish it near the surface uh, with unweighted flies, and I can retrieve those damselfly nymphs, which is one of my favorite things to fish, and they will hit that nymph right under the surface on that intermediate line. I can also fish a chronomid on it if I want because those lowland lakes uh, are just full of chironomids uh, as well. So uh, Rio Camo Lux would probably be my number one go-to lake line, which is a common question. Um, okay, kind of a localized question. I somewhat answered this earlier. Curveball 19 uh, wants to know the best book for fishing eastern Washington. So we don't sell a lot of books here. Uh, you know, books are they're in circulation. They get reused. They get handed down. But get on Amazon. And you can buy these books for the cost of shipping, but it's a Fly Fisher's Guide to Washington by Greg Thomas. That is the best book. And that same line of books, it'll be the Fly Fisher's Guide to Montana, Fly Fisher's Guide to Idaho, so on and so forth. But those books, um, you know, you could do a quick web search for those. And uh, you can get on Amazon, and I'll do it right now just as a test. But I'm going to search Fly Fisher's Guide to and I've got all these states that pop up. I got Idaho, North Carolina, Georgia, Fly Fishing Fishing Guide to Colorado. It's the same uh, publisher, and I can get it on paperback for 1990. Fantastic book, and just tangible a tangible piece of information where you can flip pages, dog ear pages, circle stuff. It's a great line of books. Um, I, I strongly recommend that you get one of those. There are, I still refer to that because there are lakes in that book. Um, and it's going to be true for like the Fly Fisher's Guide to Colorado, but the Fly Fisher's Guide to Washington, I still refer back to that book. I bought it over 20 years ago at an Albertsons near the college where I was going to school because I didn't know diddly squat about fishing in this area. And that book cut the learning curve down by half for me of finding new places to fish because the internet has an excess of unvalidated information. Books don't. Books have good information that is validated. Uh, moving on here, Zach Smith, 1984, wants to know uh, my recommended setup for soft tackles and trout spay. So I, admittedly, I don't fish a ton of soft tackles on my trout spay gear. Uh, it works really well in a lot of other places, and I have fished soft tackles for trout. It's really fun when you feel a fish pluck a number 14 soft tackle out of the water column on a tight line. It is swinging soft tackles on, on wet lines is like one of the most classic forms of fly fishing. Some would date it back uh, even prior to dry fly fishing uh, in swinging wet flies because those trout, when they, when they pluck it, and they do, they don't tackle like a streamer. They come up and they pluck it out of the water column, and it's just, it, it imitates a swimming or rising nymph. But you want, for fishing soft tackles, generally you're going to want a setup that will cast across wider, glassier portions of water 
we have pretty ferocious currents on the Akamas. So we fish Skagit heads and heavy sink tips here locally where I'm at most of the time. But when I'm on a bigger, wider river uh, this glassier, I'd like to have a Scandinavian-style line. And I'd like to have a short sinking leader to get me down in the water column just a bit. And the line setup that I'm going to recommend, and I'm just going to go to our website right now. I'm going to type spay light in the search column. And there's several options come up. And I've got uh, an in, a set scientific angler spay light integrated Scandi line. That is going to be my favorite line for fishing soft tackles on a trout spay rod. And that line right there, I like an integrated line for swinging soft tackles when I do it because I'm going to have some mending and control increase when I have an integrated line versus a mono to head connection. And it's going to lay down delicate. Uh, it's got a nice gentle taper to it. And I can put a scientific angler sonar poly leader, seven and a half foot sonar poly leader on the end of that with about a six foot tippet. And I can lay that thing down delicate not spooking trout, and poly leaders being skinnier and the Scandi head being skinnier is going to create a more subtle presentation in those slick water. Skagit heads are clunky, they're big, they're fat, and they do make more noise and have some displacement in calmer currents. So there's a stealth factor here that you need with this setup to present smaller, more delicate flies. If your line is making more displacement and more noise than your fly, that's a bad thing. You want your fly to be kind of the story or the focus point for these trout because I firmly believe they do hear things moving through the water. I'm going to run that probably on a 4X tippet. If I'm, if I'm breaking a few fish off, I might go to 3X fluorocarbon. If I'm not getting enough bites and I'm fishing a really small soft tackle in ultra clear water, I might stretch that tippet out to 6 or 7 feet and possibly down to 5X. But I'm going to let... I'm going to let the trout kind of determine that with 4X being my standard tippet, a 4X fluorocarbon specifically, be my standard tippet for soft tackles. So uh, I think I'm going to end on that question. Uh, let me jump over to the Instagram, the original Instagram story here real quick, and uh, I'm going to see if any more questions uh, popped up. And uh, I don't see anything uh, on there. So yeah, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast. Uh, appreciate you guys listening and, uh, I'll, I'll post another Instagram story and just invite more questions when I'm set up to do another one, but I'll probably try to do these like once a week and that way we can just keep super relevant content coming at you guys, but we really appreciate you listening. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, don't follow us on Instagram, go follow us there, subscribe to our YouTube channel and just stay in touch. Use our instant messaging or instant chat feature on our website. We would just love to help you out. Uh, thanks for listening.